Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast, and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and well-being, and today's guest has a very interesting story to tell. His name is uh, Mike Wonderly. He's a managing director at Echelon Partners, an investment bank to the wealth management industry. Mike, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, well, thank you very much, Diana. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the work that you do, and uh, I'm honored to be a guest. Yeah, I mean, I think we're honored um, today. I, I know you have a great story. So prior to becoming an investment banker, Mike was a wealth, manager, a wealth manager himself. Uh, in fact, he spent 12 years in the private wealth management division at Lehman Brothers and um, then several years at UBS. Uh, but it was at Lehman uh, during its downfall in 2008. And, you know, most of us remember the events of 2008, 2009, you know, and the macroeconomic impact that that crisis had on this country. And, you know, most advisors were, of course, struggling to, to navigate those turbulent times with their clients. But Mike was literally in the trenches. Mike told me that the Lehman bankruptcy had a, a, profi- a profound impact on his life personally. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I mean, so when I was one of my, I think it was one of my first weeks uh, as a reporter in the financial uh, services space, Bear Stearns went under. And so to me, it was like, this is all very exciting. You know, um, that was <laughs> yeah, what a welcome the to whole <laughs> crisis that unfolded. It was like, this is a very exciting thing. But, you know, a lot of us obviously remember what happened. I think that we kind of forget how bad it was and how awful it was for a lot of the people, you know, who were directly impacted. And so, you know, I think that it's um, great that we're talking about this today. But Mike, I just want to back up a little bit. So tell us how you got into the industry uh, in the first place. Okay, well, yeah, it was an interesting story, I guess, for me, because I wasn't sure uh, what career path I wanted to take. And I was a couple of years out of undergrad and visiting a friend in New York who uh, worked for a private equity firm, but he was a kind of a Wall Street guy. And, and we just got talking about careers and and I was curious, uh, you know, about some of the things that he'd seen in, in New York and in Wall Street, and and uh, he ended up telling me about this this career called private wealth management. And I think it was kind of just coming around among the big investment banks to offer institutional like services to to uh, high net worth families. And uh, he told me about it. And it, here's this career that uh, had a combination of sales and finance, you know, kind of the interpersonal and the analytical. And I didn't even mm-hmm. know it existed. And, and I just got super excited. Immediately, I thought, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, I thought for a while, maybe I wanted to be a 
you know, a stockbroker or some sort of, you know, investment person. But when I found out about this, it was this, you know, kind of higher end, a little bit more analytical, but also, you know, very interpersonal with, um, with uh, very successful people. And, uh, and I thought, you know, so um, immediately, really right then I said, that's what I want to do. I remember the, I remember the day we were on the steps uh, of, on the Columbia campus, uh, in, uh, on the Upper West Side in New York. So I had, I figured, well, you know, how do I get into that? It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, I had a decent undergrad and I had a, I had a pretty good job, but it was probably more on the sales and management side. So I figured I had that experience, but I definitely needed the finance kind of analytical background and really the credibility to, to get into a job like that and figured, you know, I, I had, I got to go get my MBA, which I planned on doing, but at that point, I was like, I got to go get into the best MBA program I possibly can and targeted Wharton at the top of the list for its, you know, its reputation in finance. And so I basically dedicated the next, uh, you know, besides work and family and whatnot, uh, but I had a very strong focus on figuring out a way to to sneak into a school like Wharton. And and my my work paid off. I somehow managed to get in there. Um, which was really exciting for me. And and uh, so I went with 100% with the idea of getting into the private wealth management industry and and going to that business, uh, which wasn't a common path for a lot of students at, at, at Wharton. Most people were thinking private equity, investment banking, or, you know, marketing or, or whatnot. And, um, mm. but, you know, it was, uh, it was that type of program that could launch any career, you know, they, it was, it was the wine and dine times. This was in two, 2000, we're right at the boat at the top of the tech <laughs> bubble. And, and so anyway, I was super excited to go in and my fourth day of class was nine 11. And oh, wow. so that just changed everything. Recruiting completely dried up. And, and then, you know, business mm-hmm. school goes pretty quick. It's two years and the recruiting starts, you know, day one, uh, it really yeah. does. And so, so this was, I mean, an absolute shock, uh, you know, people always go in with, with their ideas, but when you get there, it's the general feeling is, well, I'm going to just look at everything and, uh, and then go into whatever I want to go into. So it actually, because I was probably one of the the stupidest students at, among my classmates at Wharton, it, it actually, was a scenario where it was very good that I was focused because I was laser focused on this area of private wealth management, where not a lot of other students were. And because of that focus, uh, it, it really allowed me to get in deep with the, you know, the the few uh, employers that were still there, only make only hiring a few people. And uh, I was really fortunate. I ended up getting multiple offers from from most of the top investment banks at the time. So. Yeah, I went through that whole process and and I really was um th- this upstart Lehman Brothers was just really looked interesting to me. I was I knew I wanted to work out of the LA office and and the manager there was just a fantastic, fantastic individual named, named Barkley Perry. And he uh I just just fell in love with his style and you know his honesty as opposed to what I saw at some of the other places. And uh so I signed on with uh, Lehman Brothers just right out of business school. And uh, that's mm-hmm. how that's how I got in. It was it was called the private investment management. Actually, it was called wealth and asset management at the time, but but they didn't like the acronym acronym of WAM. It kind of sounded bad <laughs> in the investment space, so so they quickly changed it to private investment management. So that's how I ended up there. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't realize when I first talked to you, I guess I assumed that Lehman had a big retail business, but it was actually more um, very high touch, high net worth focused, right? They had zero, zero retail business at all. Yeah. Um, in fact, this was their first soiree into into the really the wealth management space because you know they were very big on sales and trading and investment banking, real estate and and some of the other areas of the investment banks. Um, at the time, you know, those were the big divisions, you know, investment banking and and sales and trading, the you know, the, the prop trading desks, those were really the the engines of the investment banks. Yeah. So um, you know, just sort of a little bit of context, um, you know, around what was happening in 2008. Uh, the the 2008 financial crisis began with cheap credit and lax lending standards that fueled a housing bubble. And when that housing bubble burst, the banks were left holding trillions of dollars of worthless investments in subprime mortgages. Uh, the Great Recession that followed cost many their jobs, savings, and their homes. Bear Stearns, one of the biggest and most respected Wall Street firms that dated back to 1923, a long time, um, was heavily exposed to the mortgage-backed securities that turned toxic when the loans started to default. In March 2008, the firm collapsed and was acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase for pennies on the dollar. Um, I had a friend that was at Bear, you know, obviously uh, went over to J.P. Morgan and Lehman would be the next big financial institution to fall. Um, so, uh, Mike, take us back to those days. As as hard as it is to sort of drum up um, that time, I mean, what were what were things like inside Lehman? You know, in the months leading up to the bankruptcy, and and you know, you guys loved Lehman. Everyone, it sounds like most folks were very loyal to the firm. Yeah, I mean, it was true that the, there there was a culture that that was uh, deep down in, in everyone's soul, really, that worked there. At least, at least in the Los Angeles office, you know. I mean, we got a chance to interact with the other offices, and uh, and you felt it's some in New York, but the, you know, there's a little bit of different culture there. But but we had, you know, we were a family. I mean, no one locked up their stuff or tried to hide what they were doing. We collaborated. We were close, and we all really believed in what was going on. We liked being uh, in in a, a more of a meritocracy, and and we had we had great access to all levels of the firm, and and everyone was really helpful across the firm at all the desks. So, so you know, there was plenty of success to go around. There was you know, there was a culture of of treating your client, putting the client first, and I mean, I'll give a lot of credit to to Barkley Perry who managed that office from from zero to to 12 billion in just a few years and he said you know he always said put your put your client for put the client first the firm second and yourself third and everything will work out for you you'll do you'll do better than you could ever imagine uh and he said and always always owe other people and don't don't ever have or always have other people owe you and you don't owe anyone else so so always do more favors than you than you receive and it was just a great philosophy that 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 just kind of uh, uh underlied the the culture of the office and, and everybody everybody felt felt really good and close together and, and like i said we were we were a family so we we, we cared for he for each other and and it was um it was incredibly tense you know that 
that whole lead up. I mean, you know, he had a couple of years of it because the Bear Stearns thing was a big scare. You know, I think it's important to remember at the time there were there were only five real, you know, you, what you'd say bulge bracket investment banks. And it was it was Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. And in that order of size. Mm. So Bear Stearns was the smallest and, and, and all of them were tied up in, in this stuff. Regulation hadn't caught up to the ingenuity of 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 these products, and uh, and neither had the 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 insurance firms that you know that insured these these fixed income products like the CDOs and the mortgage backed securities. So 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 when Bear Stearns happened, that that was a eye opener to everybody, and that that was a sign where maybe you know it was time to to move on. But but almost everybody stayed and really believed that things would work themselves out. Uh, and it seemed that that was a fix for a while. Uh, you know, if you can remember, there was a there was a whole year that went by where things were okay until they started really getting scary again. Mm. And then Lehman was at the bottom, you know, because Lehman was then mm. the the fourth of four remaining. But Bear Stearns, you know, they had the lowest uh, the lowest uh, credit rating of any firm of the uh, of theirs. And then when when J.P. Morgan bought them up. All owners of Bear Stearns bonds then went from owning, you know, A minus credit to to triple A credit. You know, they so their bonds all appreciated mm. in value. They were all very taken care of. You know, anyone that was exposed to Bear Stearns credit. Uh, and so mm. now with Lehman happening, you know, it wasn't even a remote possibility that bankruptcy was a question. It wasn't even talked about. I mean, I know that seems like hard to understand in retrospect, given everything that has happened. But at the time. Nothing like that had ever happened. No large investment grade company had gone bankrupt and nothing even close to the size of, of Lehman ha- had gone mm-hmm. bankrupt. I mean, I'll, just to put that into perspective, the two largest bankruptcies before Lehman were Enron and WorldCom. And Lehman mm-hmm. Brothers was 10 times larger than Enron and seven times larger than WorldCom in terms of assets. So, oh, wow. so the possibility of Lehman going bankrupt was was highly unlikely and not really even thought of as a, as a plausible scenario. Yeah, I mean, and and what what were the scenarios that were being thrown around within the firm? So we we thought, you know, when you saw what happened with Bear Stearns, you thought, okay, that's a that's a plausible scenario. Certainly, um, there was talk internally that we were going to get taken private by a private you know, by a private equity firm in a, in a mat management buyout led by private equity, which was actually very exciting because, you know, we were all pretty loyal to the firm and thought, well, you know, this is great. Then we're going to be partners of a private company. We'll grow back up. Everything will, you know, is going to work out. And ultimately with, you know, maybe whether if we go public again or whatnot, then everybody will, will do pretty well, you know, and everybody bought in. So, so, so the, the most likely scenarios where we'd get bought out by by one of the large investment banks, uh, Bank of America was being thrown around, especially at the end. You know, on that last weekend, the federal government said we will broker a deal this weekend for for Lehman mm-hmm. Brothers. We were we are going to arrange a, a sale, and um, and the, and the thought was that it was either going to be a, a private equity firm or or Bank of America. Yeah. Um, yeah, so over the weekend of September 13th, 2008, Lehman Barclays and Bank of America made a last-ditch effort to facilitate a takeover of Lehman. Um, they were unfortunately unsuccessful. 
and Bank of America uh, was instead buying Merrill Lynch. And on Monday, September 15th, Lehman declared bankruptcy, uh, resulting in the stock plunging 93% from its previous close on September 12th. Wow. It was the largest bankruptcy ever. The uh, The firm put a, a two-week lock on all client assets, and um, many of those assets would get tied up in the bankruptcy for years. So, Mike, what was that weekend and the following days like for you after Lehman declared bankruptcy? It was it was absolutely nuts. I, you know, it's funny because I, I can remember every single second of detail and yet I can't, everything's a blur at the same time. But, but I remember it was Sunday, the 14th, we were, we're watching the, the world markets on Bloomberg and the news came up that federal government basically forces Lehman to file bankruptcy and brokers a deal for Bank of America to buy Merrill Lynch. And I remember watching with with my wife and just looking at each other and not having any idea what was happening because it was just so, you know, we were at, there was actually a little bit of excitement for that weekend because then after months and months of just being the cover story on on CNBC and, and just, you know, countdown to Lehman and, and what's going to happen. We were a little bit excited to get past that and and see what the next chapter held, you know, whether that was a broker deal with with Bank of America or something else. But we were just excited yeah. to move on. When mm-hmm. that happened, it was like the sky the the sky just dropped. I mean, you know, here in just five years, I'd built up a, a really nice business that I was super proud of. I had you know about four hundred million under management. I had a partner with me and a team that I was building. Uh, but I hadn't, you know, these aren't long-term clients. This is all clients I'd gotten in in the five years I'd been there. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I just didn't, one, I wasn't all that experienced. And and two, you know, no one really had had this experience. So I just said, I got to go into the office, you know, and that was very un- unusual to go in on a Sunday and, you know, called my partner and said, yeah, I'll meet you there. And we, we, uh, Got there and everybody, everybody uh, in the office was there that day. And you just, it was, it was, what can you do? Gather clients information. We didn't know what was going to happen. No one was answering the phone at corporate. You couldn't call New York to get any answers. You just didn't know what to do. And and clients are starting to call and you don't even know what to say to them. That's a super scary feeling, right? I mean, you're supposed to be in charge. It was incredibly scary and and intimidating. And and so you don't, you're just scrambling, right? Just get information, anything you can, but but your mind is on, I have to take care of my clients. Like everybody was in that mindset. We we have to figure out what to do. So that week, it's that Sunday, and then and then you know you're you're at Monday, and that's when you're really being held accountable and, and all the calls come in. So you're just going between fielding calls and saying, hey, look, uh, you know, look, we're just trying to figure it out. Hope you should be okay because the FDIC um, is is taking over. So your your asset should be all right. But but we didn't really know. We didn't know what this would mean. And clients wanted to understand, well, what about anything that has exposure to Lehman debt or anything like that? And we're saying, look, we're just going to try to find out. We're just going to find out. At the same time, you're calling the calling 
headquarters trying to figure out what's going on. And then also you're trying to set up interviews so you can go in and, and move somewhere, right? Somewhere else. Yeah. Essentially switch jobs so you could go to another firm and, and then have, take care of your clients there because because it, it wasn't talked about you know Barclays ended up buying the assets but that was several days later and 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 it wasn't being talked about we just didn't know we didn't feel like there was still going to be a firm to be there most of us so so we're crossing each other on the street walking back and forth between Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse and and Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan and just going in with a basically a a sheet that said what our trailing 12 was and we're going in and um, it was kind of, it was kind of like a green pastures for them, even though they're, they were all scrambling too, but they thought, wow, here's a, we, we have a chance to bring over all these assets without anyone left behind to try to keep them there. So it was a really interesting dynamic, right? Because everything else in the financial world had completely frozen. Nobody was hiring every, no one even knew what to do because the fallout was just starting to happen after the, the bankruptcy announced. I mean, every hour there was new information about how that tied to some institution or or how that was affecting the whole global financial system that they didn't anticipate you know on the hour these new these news reports are dropping so it was it was it was pandemonium yeah i mean i wanted to you know looking back there were a lot of risks that surfaced during that that time and i, I wanted you i mean i know that there was one risk that that came up for you and your clients that a lot of folks didn't see coming, didn't know about. Um, what was that big risk that came up and, and how did that impact your clients? Well, so in terms of client assets, you know, the FDIC kind of seized them and, and no one really had access for a couple of weeks. And then when the scramble mode was over, it took, took a few days for literally just a few days. I think, I think on the 18th was my first day at UBS. Um, and a bunch of our office went over there, but the, once, once the seizure stopped and, and clients could transfer, that's when you really realized what was tied up in the bankruptcy and what was not, it turned out about 30% maybe of, of my client's assets were, were non-transferable. They were, they were being tied up into the, into the bankruptcy. And there were three ways basically that your assets could get tied up. And that was one was. Yeah, this, you're probably, I think what you're alluding to is this rehypothecation. And that was a big word back then. And no one even knew what it mm -hmm. meant until it, this happened. And then everyone knew. And, and so basically, if you had clients on margin or if their assets were rehypothecated, which I'll explain in a second, or um, they held their cash assets in auction rate securities. And that's another big one that a lot of people don't know about, but that was a cash surrogate at the time. But it, it did have um, credit risk. Just it wasn't seen as credit risk because it was all AAA rated, you know, insured stuff. But that got tied in into bankruptcy too. So that's a big ch chunk of people's cash that they had in that. And if you hadn't gotten out of it yet, then then it was tied up. So the mm. so the big the big eye opener though, once this happened, and what really shocked clients and advisors, especially advisors at Lehman, was that any any funds that we were placing clients into that were that used Lehman Brothers trading desk as the prime broker. And mind you, like most people didn't even know who the prime broker was. That was behind the scenes. It didn't really matter to the actual investments. It's just whoever the, the fund used to trade for to trade securities and and to use margin and 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 whatnot. So even really safe 
funds, you know, use a prime broker. And what mm -hmm. we realized is as Lehman Brothers had a huge prime broker business. And when you're a prime broker, part of the arrangement is that you are, you are, and you know, these their funds have subscription documents and it says somewhere in the small print, essentially that they're allowed to do this. The assets that you technically own in this fund, the prime broker can, can use as uh, uh, they can use them to, for rehypothecation, which means they can essentially use them as collateral for other loans that they were taking. So, so your securities that you supposedly own can be used for collateral. So hmm. that was the big deal that was that that tied everything into bankruptcy because then because then someone else had claim to those assets, so you couldn't get them back right then because someone else had a claim to them. So that's scary. And you know, nothing, nothing like that had, had, had ever happened. And, and I think the scarier thing, which still probably is an implication today that many advisors I've talked to since then still didn't realize that this was even a thing. But when you just when you just open a basic brokerage account, you know, or some investment account with an investment bank, there's an option on there. It's a box that says, do you want the ability to, to use margin? And you know, usually advisors would say like, I mean, yeah, if you ever just think that you might want to use that, you can just check it and you don't ever have to, and you're not going to get charged anything unless you want to use margin, but you know, you might need to really quickly make that decision. So, so it might be worth it. All you got to, uh, all you, it's just checking a box. No one realized that just by checking that box, it classified your account as a margin account. And as a margin account, they were allowed to rehypothecate those securities that were in, that were in that account. So that was another really big thing. And I still think today there's most people probably don't even know about this. So, so that was another big eye opener and a very scary thing that our clients learned and, and, and our clients lost money because of this, you know, and now fortunately I didn't have anyone on margin, but I certainly had clients in funds that used Lehman as a prime broker um, and in auction rate securities. I had my, I had my own, I had some of my own funds in auction rate securities that, that were tied up for, you know, five years or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I think those were the really big issues that clients and advisors felt more than anything as a part of Lehman. Yeah. And I know that you were telling me that, you know, when you went over to UBS, um, you know, you had some clients asking you, are my assets safe? And, and you felt like you couldn't guarantee that. And so what happened there? Um, you know, I think you had some clients walk out the door because of that, but how did that, um, you know, make you feel what happened with your clients over at UBS? I, um, yeah, that, that, that was hard. You know, I mean, you talk about it as kind of a, an event that happened, Lehman goes bankrupt, but then you go to a new firm and you start from there. But the reality was that the sky was still falling, right? I mean, yeah. One of the reasons we chose UBS, a bunch of us did, is because, you know, Swiss backed, which the turmoil wasn't happening in Switzerland. They had already been in the news and, and it had some bad things happen and they had resolved. They got out in front of it and resolved it. So we thought they were in pretty good shape. But when we get there, you know, every day the market's still just tanking and tanking. And it's, you know, if you remember, it wasn't until I think uh, the end of the first quarter of 2009 where the market rebounded. So you still had a good six months of turmoil. And in that yeah. time, so much, so much is happening. Rumors are flying around. Some bank's going to go under. You're going to sell off an asset. That was crazy. So, so you know, I was fortunate. I was one of the first people to get the majority of my clients' assets over, which was, you know, I felt very humbled by, and um, that my clients would at least trust me that much. 
you know, but also they, you know, they, they wanted to get somewhere safe, I'm sure as well. Uh, but then, then they asked me, you know, and I, I didn't have a ton of clients. I had a lot of big clients and, um, and, you know, they asked me, so, okay, we're, we're settled now here, but I lost a lot at Lehman and a lot was tied up in the bankruptcy. I don't know what's going to happen with that. You know, can you, things got, we're still shaky, remember, and news was bad. And they said, can you guarantee me that my money's safe at UBS? And I, my answer was, well, I can guarantee you that I will do everything I can and be fully transparent and I will research everything to make sure it is, but I can't guarantee you that systematically everything will hold up and that something bad won't happen. I, I just can't do that in good, in good conscience. I cannot do that. And, and yeah, I, I believe that I was worried myself, you know, there were rumors about UBS mm -hmm. at the time. I, I was, I was, I was terrified. And so when they most of the majority of my business said we we just we're just terrified we're going to just take basically take our money and, and liquidate everything and 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 put it under our mattress or or whatever or keep it at like a local bank because they feel like proximity made it better whatever the reasons were rational or irrational i didn't fight it because i i felt like to fight it i'd have had to mislead them from what i really believed you know i just seen you know, <laughs> like she looked like it felt like I stared death in the face with the whole Lehman thing. You know, I think I told you, like, you know, I was on my way actually to take a job at Morgan Stanley first. You know, my partner and I were like, okay, we're going to do this. And we got up to to walk across the street to accept the job. And we checked the ticker and and Morgan Stanley was down 35% in addition to what they already were down for oh, wow. the year, 35% that day. And we thought, wow. this is before TARP or anything. And we thought they might not, they might not be around tomorrow. <laughs> like they might go under. So how can we possibly walk over there and tell our clients we made the move? And then, and then if it's not around in 24 hours, we're done. Like we're, our, our business is through. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, sure. I, I would, I, you call it skepticism or paranoia or what it was, but you know, we all felt it. Uh, all of us at Lehman, we, you know, we, we felt it big time. And, and so yeah, so most of my business walked out the door and I I I allowed it. I facilitated it. I didn't tell them to do it, but they, you know, I didn't I I said, look, I, you know, I'm here for you, but I can't guarantee safety. So so it was rough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just um for those who don't know, uh the troubled asset relief program TARP was signed into law by President Bush and uh, October 2008, and it allowed the government to buy preferred stock in eight banks, including Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Bank of New York Mellon, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, et cetera. I, I know that you were telling me, I know we're kind of skipping ahead here a little bit, but I want to address you know, how all of this affected you personally. And you know, I know that you, you were saying that kind of from 2008 to 2015, you felt, you know, unfulfilled professionally, um, like you had no control or options in your career. And how did you, you know, sort of come back from that? And how did you get to the point where you're at today, where you are feeling fulfilled and successful and love what you're doing? Yeah. That's, yeah. I know that's um, a big question. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> no, I appreciate it. It, um, 
I mean, I guess it's it's hard to convey the the emotions that that went on with it. First of all, you know, again, I was proud. I I I invented this this business that that uh, wasn't. You know, it's a little bit more common today, but uh, you know what what I did was I worked with with entrepreneurs and business owners, and then I would help them sell their company by bringing in Lehman Brothers or bringing it, you know, whatever it was, or or bringing in a trading desk or whatever it was. The you know, kind of a problem solver up in advance, and then when they got that liquidity event, they would be more trusting of me. And and I was, you know, I was super super proud of it. You know, I didn't come from from, you know, or a wealthy home or anything. And, and um, a little bit of a middle child syndrome, maybe uh, to, to mm-hmm. kind of, I, I was, I was just proud that I created this business and I was right at the beginning of, of kind of the, the main stretch of my career. Right. So I was, I think I was um, around 35 well, at the time. really and- supported that. Right. They they did. And again, in my particular office, especially, and there were only 12 of these offices around the world. So, so you know, we, there was only two in the in the Western US, San Francisco and, and LA, but absolutely they supported it 100%, provided me the resources I needed, were very helpful. And, and I was, so I was, I, I, I had established this and it was just all going to, it was all supposed to be smooth sailing from there. Anything that, you know, in the wealth management business, what's so great about it is you have clients and they, they pay, you earn an annuity, right? On the, based mm-hmm. a, a percentage of the assets you manage. So, you, you know, assuming you don't lose clients, you just build from there. Plus their assets grow as they, as they succeed. And then you add clients. And so the hard part was done. Everything else was just really how, you know, how far do you want to take it? Where do you want to go with this? Um, and everything looked so bright. And then when most of my clients walked out the door a few months after moving over to UBS, I, I felt like I'd won the lottery. And what are the chances of, of winning the lottery twice? Right. I mean, yeah. it was a very, it was a very scary feeling. And I thought, you know, I was with my partner still, and we were like, look, look, we can do this again. And, and we tried to replicate the same thing at UBS. And it just wasn't, it wasn't set up for it. It wasn't working that, you know, a lot of the people that had hired us and were excited about our business model in the first place had been turned over and, you know, won't get into all that, uh, all, all the reasons, but it was, it was, it was almost impossible to grow the business with what we did and what we were passionate about. And, you know, the way those deals work, we're, we're in a kind of the golden handcuffs of a forgivable loan situation. So, so you, you know, in a way you're, you're stuck there and and then stuck without being able to do what you need to do to succeed it was a claustrophobic feeling i mean you know and and i i just i didn't see any way out and i didn't see a lot of options we kept trying we kept trying i mean all along we kept trying and it just it just wasn't it wasn't the right situation and it wasn't going to work out and it was you know it, and, and then and then, you know, after a few years and you think back about where you were and where things were going at a time, it just, it was just very, very emotional, you know, and, 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 and hard and, and you feel like you don't have any control. Um, and you're yeah. in the, supposed to be in the prime of your career. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it just, it changed personality. Like it became more, more cynical and definitely more skeptical. You know, it, it, it helped me understand risk, so you know which would which would hopefully help to serve me in in any client service capacity going forward because I understand that there's more than just market risk. You know, there's all kinds of different risk that uh, there's, and especially the risks you don't even know about. But yeah. um, I had to get a, a you know, I, you know, I'd always been yeah, you know, 
got an MBA from Warden and I was really just excited and focused on having a, a, a big career. Um, at the same time, you know, I was growing a family. I had, I had four sons and, and um, personally, I was able to keep, you know, myself okay and uh, from a mental uh, standpoint by really spending more time family. And I did a lot of coaching. I got really into coaching mm. and, and so that allowed me to spend time with the kids and everything, but, but it was always lingering there. Like, you know, like at some point, you know, this is going to, it's going to take its tolls and it did more and more and more up until, yeah, it was a, probably a good six, six or seven years there. Right. Right. In the, you know, my, my late thirties and, and just into my early forties. So I didn't know what I was going to do, you know, and if financial advisors that are listening to this can understand it's once you choose that profession, it's your profession. It's not one that's, that's real. There's no natural uh, leap to anything else. And that's, that's what I'd been doing since, since I finished business school. So, so, so uh, I felt like, sure, I'd be capable of doing other things. It was, uh, that's hard. That's, it's a harder sell, right. To, to get someone to, to believe in that. And, and I had a very focused little niche. Fortunately, it worked out, but, you know, just to answer the, and I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but just to answer more specifically your question earlier, how it affected me, it's, it's hard to convey, but, but I think one of, one way to, to, I guess, put an example around it is, you know, I, I tried to, I tried to read Too Big to Fail. I tried to watch some of the movies and, and the, specials that came out about it, I couldn't get two minutes in without becoming, and I'm not a super overly just emotional person, but overwhelmed when, when anything would play, you know, because you feel like you, you feel like you were wronged. You feel like, I mean, there's so many things that go into it. It, You know, there's anger, there's sadness, there's just so much shame. You know, there's, there's just a ton of emotions that go into it. And I couldn't, I couldn't even you know, watch a movie, even that second wall street that came out that had to be refilmed, uh, you know, several times because of what was going mm-hmm. on, they ended up having pretty much a parody of, of the whole Lehman situation in there. And I was watching that with my wife and you, she went through this with me and and uh, we were both like in tears during wall street too. Like that's uh, pretty embarrassing there, but, but it had that much emotion. And that was several years later. There's, there are a lot of different, uh, kind of lanes I could take with that uh, from an emotional perspective. Um, but, you know, ultimately it, you know, it became time, you know, times were a little rough and I had to find a way to d- dig myself out. And so I was able to, I finally made the decision, you know, to just leave my business. My, my partner held on to what we had and he moved on to an RIA and went on the independent side and, and um, was going to continue that. And, and I, decided I would, you know, just try to manage some clients on my own on the kind of on as a business brokerage side, right? So working with entrepreneurs and maybe helping them get liquidity at some point. Um, Cause I mm-hmm. built up some of these relationships for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I came across Echelon Partners, which was right in my backyard. I, I called Dan Sievert, the founder and CEO directly and said, Hey, look, this is this is very interesting. You're an investment bank. You do M&A in the wealth management space. And you know my whole business was running a wealth management business, but I helped entrepreneurs sell their companies. So I, so I had a hybrid business technically. And this just marries the things that I know best. And 
we got lunch and right away it was a, it was a clear match and I joined and, and uh, kind of right before really this, this revolution in the wealth management space happened, this big consolidation and, and a lot of attention and, and private equity money, M&A came here and, and, you know, ramped up for that. And then just um, ended up being in a position to really just take advantage of that and, and have an incredibly fulfilling job and career and, and being, you know, Dan's number two. And so on the forefront of helping to develop how our firm shaped with this, with this, uh, I would say, you know, evolution of the industry and then doing what I love more than anything, which is working with entrepreneurs and business owners and, and, and putting myself in their shoes and treating them how, how I'd want to be treated and, and how I'd want, um, you know, it's very, it's a very, uh, emotional thing to sell your company or to transition in that sort of a way and take liquidity for something you've built your whole life. So I just, um, I really enjoy being a part of that. And honestly, I do felt, feel like it is kind of a, a, a little bit of a second win of the lottery. I, I, you know, I'm so grateful for it every day that I can be doing something again that I love and, and have a career that I love. And, you know, I'm seven and a half years into that now. Um, but you just you never forget the feelings are all are always there. Yeah. So so my appreciation for it and and my love for this particular industry, I think is is genuine and rooted in some kind of a different history than 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 a lot. It's um, certainly unique. Um, so you know I try to take those lessons and challenge and and channel them for the positive now, but also at the same time super appreciative because you know for a long time was in a was in a really kind of bad space. Yeah. You know how bad it can be. Um, well, we are, I'm looking forward to reading the book someday if that ever comes to fruition. But if you're, if you're not familiar with, with Echelon Partners and the work that Mike um, and Dan Sievert do, do there, um, you know, they, they do great work in the industry and, and you should um, definitely familiarize yourself with them. Well, I'm afraid I'm just, uh, we're just about out of time but I'd like to thank my guest, Mike Wonderly, for being on the podcast and, and just opening up uh, Mike and, and being so vulnerable about, about the story and about what you went through at Lehman. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Diana. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. It helps to talk about it. Maybe, you know, uh, reminds me some things for the book that I will never write, but would like to. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate it. And, and again, I think I think you do really amazing work and you have some great guests. And I'm just honored and humbled to be one of them. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, I think what, what you've been through is, is, you know, very honorable and how you treated your clients and, um, you know, we could all learn from that. Um, but if you'd like to reach out to Mike, you know, you'd like to touch base with him personally, you can reach him at mwonderly at echelon-partners.com. And if you yourself have a struggle, if you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. 
click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.